and welcome to Volleyball State, a look at college volleyball in six rotations, proudly sponsored this week by the University of Nebraska Federal Credit Union, where by just listening to this show, you are eligible to be a member. I'm Jeff Sheldon. And I'm Lincoln Arneal. On the show today, also sponsored by Bison Incorporated, the Final Four is now set, and Nebraska is headed to Tampa after a dogfight, maybe it's a hog fight, against Arkansas in the regional final. We'll break down how the Huskers reached their 16th Final Four. We will also look at the other regional finals to see who else will be joining the Huskers in Tampa this week. But first, you can find the show on social media. Follow us on Twitter at VolleyballPod. You can also email the show at volleyballstate at gmail.com. We are also a proud part of the Podcast House Media Podcast Network. You can find us and all the other great Podcast House Media shows at podcasthousemedia.com. You can find me online on social media at by Jeff Sheldon. And I'm on Twitter at Lincoln underscore VB, and you can read all my daily coverage at huskersillustrated.com. What's your travel schedule like this week? You're on the road. Yeah, I am flying out Tuesday night. So Wednesday, they have uh, press conferences with all the final four teams. Uh, there's also open practices. So I will be there watching that, talking to all the coaches and players. So I'm, but I'm, my plan is to fly out Tuesday night to get down to Tampa. So yeah, that'd be a good so time. So one half of, one half of volleyball state will be at the final four live in Tampa. Um, we will probably be taping a midweek show as yeah. well from, uh, well, Lincoln will be in Tampa. I'll be holding it down, uh, mm-hmm. here in the heartland, but yeah, stay tuned. We're going to have some great stuff coming up, uh, during the final four as well, which is something that I don't know, Lincoln, if we thought in the middle part of the year or <laughs> through some, um, through some some t- white knuckle moments late in the regular season that Nebraska was going to make it. But here we are. The Huskers have won four matches in the postseason. They're headed to the final four. And we're going to talk about that and so much more uh, this week. Yes, we will do our six rotations around college volleyball. We will start off uh, with round one, the regional semifinals, Nebraska's win against Georgia Tech. We'll give you a quick recap of that. Then we will go on to the highlight of the weekend, Arkansas versus Nebraska in the regional final. We will then be joined by our special guest this week, Emily Eamon, a color commentator and analyst with Big Ten Network, among other uh, networks. Uh, Then we will kind of hit the other regions, too. We'll talk about Louisville Pitt in the regional final. We'll talk about Wisconsin and Oregon uh, in rotation five. And then we'll wrap up rotation six, talking about Texas and Stanford, uh, as long as some other, other noteworthy, uh, noteworthy, we'll kind of do a little uh, smuggle in it, there and get two topics. Man, Texas really, for a team that's uh, going to the SEC next year, traded us to two Pac-12 after dark experiences this yeah. week. So uh, thanks, to, thanks to Texas for that. Texas facing a match point down against Tennessee in the Sweet 16 ends up coming back and, and is, is headed to the final four where they're going to play Wisconsin. So this is going to be a lot of fun this week. Um, we're going to start it out in rotation one, Nebraska against Georgia Tech. We're not going to spend a ton of time on the Georgia Tech match. It was the least competitive match that Nebraska um, treated us to, I think, during the, the NCAA tournament, even considering yeah. the Missouri win in round two. The Huskers looked as best they have all tournament, in my opinion, Lincoln. Yeah. They hit 326. The offense was humming. What were your initial impressions of uh, Nebraska-Georgia Tech on Thursday night? Uh, Georgia Wait, Tech, Thursday I'm, afternoon, excuse Thursday me. Afternoon, yeah, Thursday afternoon. It was a one o'clock start. And I don't know if that messed with it, but Georgia Tech just looked out of sorts. They started with hitting airs. They, yeah. it was unforced hitting airs too. Nebraska's block didn't do a whole lot, but I don't know if they were just intimidated by it and they were just spraying the bleachers. 
Uh, I know there's that famous uh, uh, pass chart of the Ohio State quarterback flying flying passes all over the Memorial Stadium when they visited uh, Nebraska about a decade ago. But they were hitting front row, they were hitting wide. Georgia Tech just looked out of sorts, and I was it was surprising to me because they looked they looked like they had some explosive potential and just never from the get go. Are you saying are fight. you saying tomorrow Otene turned into Joe Bowserman when she yes, played at the Benny Center? You got I mean right. Georgia Tech, we knew coming into this match just a little bit uh, about about uh, the Yellow Jackets that they were kind of trick or treat. Some nights they will look amazing, full of all Americans, and the other and other nights they will just kind of be a mess. Um messy Georgia Tech, the rambling wreck from Atlanta was the team that showed up on Thursday. Um they let Nebraska hit three twenty six. Tomorrow Otene, who was Georgia Tech's uh, leading attacker who was the player that if you're a Nebraska fan, you were really worried about coming into Thursday. She had nine kills and 14 errors on 36 swings. She hit negative and at times felt like she couldn't find you know the court with a compass and a map. Um, Nebraska played really well on offense as well. Merritt Beeson had 11 kills and hit 435. Um, even though she had a little bit of a slow start, just two kills in the first uh, set, but came on in the second two sets, uh, had four blocks as well. Allie Batenhorst, this was a good match for her. 10 kills on 280 hitting, which if you get Batenhorst, I'd say above 230, that's probably, yeah. um, you know, you're going to take that any any time you can get. And the middles were really efficient as well. Um, Andy Jackson and Becca Alec, 10 kills, just one error on 17 attempts for a toasty yeah. 529 hitting percentage. But Lincoln, it was Nebraska's block and defense that really was set the tempo on on Thursday. For sure. I mean, we mentioned that they, the block really wasn't involved that much in the first set. They had maybe two blocks, but really got going in the second set. They had five or six blocks. Uh, Becca Alec, uh, Andy Jackson had five of them. Becca Alec was a big part. She was probably in the other five or six of them. So uh, really kind of carried the load there too. And, and really frustrated. There was a couple instances where they would back to back stuff and you could just see the life coming mm-hmm. out of Georgia Tech's players. It's, and, and then they tried to adjust and accommodate uh, and, nothing was happening to so much to the point they adjusted by they switched from a six, two offense that they ran in the first two sets to a five, one setter offense in the third set. And I think that helped them a little bit. It took a little bit while for Nebraska to adjust to the different looks mm-hmm. and the different matchups they were getting. Uh, and that maybe, I don't know if it was Nebraska really had a third set lull as opposed to adjusting to the adjustment. So yeah. but Georgia tech looked better in that third set. Yeah, and, and Nebraska outblocks Georgia Tech for the match, eleven to two. Andy Jackson led the Huskers with five blocks. Lexi Rodriguez also with twelve do- digs. As uh, you know, Nebraska's block and floor defense, as you mentioned, Lincoln. Even when you didn't get blocks after you know that game two, they're spraying balls around the block and wide, and and they're just hitting it out. So that's the sign of a good disciplined defensive team mm-hmm. when you're you're not necessarily getting stuffs but you're set up so well that if they miss the block then they're hitting it out of bounds so um good job on nebraska there they hit uh georgia tech hit 019 which is the second lowest mark by a husker opponent all season long lincoln this is cheating a little bit if you looked at the the pod social media feed do you remember what nebraska's season low mark for an opponent hitting percentage was well, you don't have to know the well, number. It wasn't Just Omaha. Which Omaha hit was. negative. Yes, we, it was UNO in the Memorial yeah. Stadium match. Yeah. That's right. UNO was the only team that hit negative against Nebraska this year, and they did it outdoors in front of 90,000 people. And so, you know, I feel like that's grading on a little bit of a curve. Um, let's jump into game three real quick. Uh, it was the only set that was really tight. Um, Georgia Tech actually led late in this one, 17-16, after they made a great defensive play of their own and got a transition kill. Um, but then the Huskers trailed 18-17 and ended the match on a uh, 
uh, or went on a 7-1 run after trailing 18-17 to go up, let's see, 24-19. And it was academic from there. Merritt Beeson's final kill ended it. And Nebraska cruised into the regional final with a toasty 3-0 sweep against Georgia Tech. Uh, any more thoughts, Lincoln, that you have on that match before we we get go deep into the Arkansas match? I mean, Nebraska, this is Nebraska that you expect to show up in the regional final. This is what John Cook was talking about when the uh, stage is a little bit bigger. Nebraska raises its level and their play, and they really kind of showed, they showed out this match and really kind of, even you were worried about the one o'clock start, that was not an issue. The Devaney Center was packed. There was a little bit of extra juice in it, in there so nebraska really took care of business and um i, I you said it was the most least competitive match that nebraska's played it was one of the, the least uh dramatic regional semifinals in the nation too so nebraska did what you you're supposed to do as the number one seed the university of nebraska federal credit union is a proud supporter of husker volleyball and their fans and hey now they can say they are a proud sponsor of volleyball state We know there are a lot of alumni, fans, and friends of the University of Nebraska who listen to this show. And if you're an alum of any of the University of Nebraska's four campuses, or if you have a family member who's an alum, or if you're just a big Husker fan, you too can become a member of the University of Nebraska Credit Union. Membership has its benefits, including personal service. A real person is going to pick up the phone and answer it when you call, and they're going to be there to help you. Plus, you get all the convenient online options that you'd expect of a larger bank or credit union, an updated website, a mobile app that you can bank from anywhere. Members also get low interest rates on loans like home equity loans, refinancing and auto loans and never any added fees. And their staff is committed to make banking easy for you. I can personally attest to this. My wife and I are members of the University of Nebraska Federal Credit Union, and we've been banking with them for the last several years. And we've had great experiences with them. They've got two locations in Lincoln. So if you are in Lincoln, you can stop in downtown near the UNL campus at 17th and P or uh, near uh, in central Lincoln, more convenient for you. You can find them at about 52nd and O Street, um, just by the high V that's there at 52nd and O. And you can always find complete details and become a member online from anywhere at nufcu.org. Thank you so much to the University of Nebraska Federal Credit Union for sponsoring this episode of Volleyball State. Lincoln, rotation two, the long one. Arkansas, man, this this felt like a regional final. Like this was a yes. match that and an opponent that was worthy of a regional final. It, the rallies were long. Like you're pulling, you know, metaphorically for you and me, we're pulling our hair out watching this, <laughs> and it was tense. But if you're yeah. a neutral observer, I think this had to have been a lot of fun to mm-hmm. watch because that Arkansas team. I, I came away from this match really, really impressed with with what they were all about. Sure, I went and I was thinking about this too. I had, I don't think I've ever been to a regional final that Nebraska's played at home. Um, I've been to a couple of regional. I've been to a couple on the road. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, well, I take that. Back. It's been at least twenty years, I think, since I've I've been to it. It may have been that two thousand two match when they lost to uh, when they Hawaii. lost to Hawaii. Hawaii, yeah. So this is this never- is the first. Yeah, sorry, this is the first regional final that Nebraska's played in the Devaney Center since 2016 when they smoked Washington uh, a day after of the five-cent win over Penn State. And this match was nothing like that boat racing yeah. of Washington back in 2016. But the crowd with them, again, crowd showed up. I mean, you could just tell they wanted to explode even in the first set. I mean, uh, we'll get to the play-by-play a little bit. When Arkansas took that lead in the early set, they were – they kind of – were little you could feel the anxiety in the in the stands too so uh but it was mm-hmm. a, a lot of fun too and uh is the emotion was high you could tell how much this meant to both teams uh, but then nebraska gets the job done they will be going to their 17th 
Final Four, which is a second all-time in history, which they gained when they gained on Stanford because Stanford mm-hmm. not going to the Final Four and Nebraska is, so they're yeah. in the gap between the Cardinal and themselves. I might have I might have screwed that up in the show open and said 16th Final Four. This is Nebraska 17th. Stanford I think has 23 all-time Final Four appearances, so they lead in Final Fours. They also lead in national titles, but they will get be getting neither of those this year, as we'll talk about in a little bit where Stanford couldn't overcome Texas. Um, My overall thoughts on this match, you know, this was a standard, ugly Nebraska win. This felt like maybe a Saturday night of a back-to-back on the road in the Big Ten where maybe you played a tough Friday night match, and on Saturday you're just, like, emptying the tank and trying to scratch out wins by by two points. Because, listen, and Arkansas felt like they were really comfortable playing that kind of match, too. This was not a beautiful offensive showcase. Nebraska hit 194 in this match. Arkansas hit 100. So neither team broke 200. This was a match of scratch it out, long rallies, lots of tips, lots of, uh, lots of blocks and great defensive plays. You know, if, if a couple things came away, um, my impression was of Arkansas one, those outsides were as good as advertised and Jill Gillen and Taylor head, the sub six foot outsides played incredibly fearless, but that Arkansas defense, Oh my goodness. They were scrambling all over the floor. They were keeping balls off the floor. They were every bit Nebraska's equal when it came to floor defense. And then what I was also really impressed was Arkansas's um, toughness at the service line. Yeah. They had Nebraska chasing their own tail on serves like from from early going in this match there were times where it looked like nebraska you know was playing a match like a spring match where they hadn't really worked a lot on serve receive yet arkansas was was serving them off the court at times and nebraska had to overcome all of that to uh to advance to the final four yeah. And the key to me, too, is Nebraska's block really showed up. I mean, uh, Nebraska's block had sometimes a tendency to really disappear and not have much of an impact on the match, too. But their block really showed mm-hmm. up. I mean, they finished with 17 blocks uh, for the match, too. But yeah. that, doesn't, that doesn't even fully measure the full impact. Uh, they were just, I mean... They weren't getting a lot of points, but they were stuffing the Arkansas. I mean, Arkansas took 180 swings, which is 25 more than Nebraska, which is so. And Nebraska mm-hmm. only had 16 more digs. So it wasn't like they were getting a lot of balls up, but it was just they were turning them back at the net, yeah. making them recycle and swing again and swing again, too. So the block was really effective, even when it wasn't scoring points. But I did think it took a while for that block to get into the flow of things because Arkansas runs so oh, yeah. fast and they're so quick. And they push that tempo. And they're so good at tooling the block, too. One thing that you saw from if you watch that Arkansas-Kentucky match on Thursday, Arkansas is not afraid if you put a big block up there. They're like, oh, cool. Something for me to hit off of. (laughs) And, you know, their philosophy under Jason Watson is attacking the block. So you can throw your 6'4 or your 6'2 players up there for a block. And Jill Gillen and Taylor Head are just going to hit the ball at an angle off your hands so that it goes in the third row and and they've got themselves a kill. So Nebraska had a little bit of adjusting to do there, but whatever secret sauce Nebraska has found in blocking has really popped up in the last three matches. You know, we all complained about, I think they had six blocks in the Long Island match in round one. Well, Nebraska over the last three matches has put together 42 blocks against Missouri, Georgia Tech, and Arkansas, and they're going to need to take that energy into the Final Four, a Pittsburgh team that is really, really physical and good offensively. Yeah, and that's where we we talked to both Merritt Beeson and Bergen Riley, who were on that 
right pin, which would be against their opposite outside hitter for Arkansas, which Taylor Taylor Head and uh, Jillian Gillen uh, really mm-hmm. did their work too. And they said they're they're focused, get to the pin, get outside, and not let them not let the tool be there too. So that was their focus. It took them a while mm-hmm. to get that, and so didn't always do it execute it perfectly. But that was the game plan. That was hammered home to them by the coaches that get to the pins, shut mm-hmm. off the tool, and get next to that antenna. Well, let's get to the numbers in this one real quick, and then we can get into some of the pivotal points of the match. Um, Merritt Beeson, once again, led Nebraska offensively, 19, 19 kills on 48 swings. But this was a great all-around Beeson match. She had 11 digs. She added eight blocks, which I have to guess is a season high for her. Um Harper Murray really came on late. She had 15 kills on 43 swings and added 12 digs. Six of those kills, I believe, came in the fourth set where Nebraska really needed her to come on. Becca Alec with 12 blocks in this match. Nebraska outblocked the Razorbacks 17 to 9. Um, you mentioned Huskers out dug Arkansas Lincoln 78-62. Arkansas um, led the SEC in digs per set this season. So you knew that Arkansas was going to really bring it with the floor def- defense energy. And oh my gosh, did they ever, if you get a chance to watch that match back, there were there were times where I'm like, how are they keeping these balls off the floor? And that's normally what Nebraska does. And you can see how frustrating it is from an offensive standpoint when you're putting these balls through the block or over the block, and you're like, oh, what do I got to do to get a kill against these guys? And Bergen Riley, great run of the offense, 40 assists, 16 digs. You mentioned how many digs Nebraska had 78. 16 of those came from Bergen Riley. 20 of them came from Lexi Rodriguez. There were five different Husker players that reached double-figure digs. So it, was just, it wasn't just one person. Mm-hmm. It was a team effort of doing that floor defense, too. So uh, Laney mm-hmm. Chukoy, we'll give her a shout-out because she sometimes falls in the stats. She had 13 digs, too. But the, the mm-hmm. Arkansas attack, just struggled a lot too. They got a lot of swings too. I mean, Jill Gilland, who's all SEC type of player, 14 kills, hit just 050. And then Taylor Head also had 10 kills, but they both each they both each had 10 hitting airs too. So uh they both combined hit yeah. 37. Yeah, Arkansas hits 156 in game one, 025 in game two. The high water mark was the set they won in game three. Uh, 222, and then they hit zero in game four, um, eight kills and eight errors. They were led, of course, by Jill Gillen, who had 14 kills, but her efficiency was way down from the Thursday win over Kentucky. She only hit 050 against Nebraska on Saturday. Taylor Head went zero. She had 10 kills, but 10 errors combined with Gillen. Gillen and Head both hit uh, 037. Head was also worn out from the service line. Nebraska served at Taylor Head 39 times trying to wear her down. And then we had said before the match that, you know, Gillen can go off if you're Nebraska, and that's fine as long as nobody else does. Maggie Cartwright really stepped up to give Arkansas a third offensive option. She had 11 kills. It wasn't enough. But if you were going to tell Arkansas fans before the match, hey, Gillen, Head, and Cartwright were all going to be in double figures, I think you would have liked your chances. And then also, let's give a shout out. Sania Pettis also had nine kills. I mean, they're the only four people who had any attacks at all, too. But getting her involved from the middle block, she ran a lot of slides also really mm-hmm. helped, uh, diversify. I mean, diversify them their attack a little bit as well too. Um, Nebraska, as we mentioned earlier, kind of got served off the court at times against Arkansas. Arkansas landed eight aces against Nebraska, which was the most against the Huskers all year. Uh, several teams had gotten Nebraska for five aces in a match, but the eight aces were were season high by Arkansas, and they were picking on lots of players. I think Merritt Beeson got ace. Uh, they served uh, Harper Murray more than anyone. Laney Choboy uh, was getting picked on. On a little bit. And then um, Allie Batenhorst only was served, I think, nine times. But a couple of those stick out in my head is um, Arkansas really liked that matchup. And so, you know, that's one thing, you know, you're in the final four. 
every everything else is kind of icing on the cake from here on out. But if you were to tell me beforehand that Nebraska is going to get aced eight times and really kind of struggle passing the ball at times and still win the match, I don't know that I would have believed you. And yeah. it, yeah, go ahead, Lincoln. To their, to their credit, Nebraska's credit too. I mean, they did their job from the service line. They, I thought they served fairly tough. Uh, coincidentally, they had one ace, which was the first point of the match too. Bergen Riley, uh, yeah, Bergen Riley started the match off with an ace, and then they didn't mm-hmm. get an ace the rest of the match. But they only had three errors. Their first error came eleven uh, five in the second set, so they did a good job. Mm-hmm. I, I thought they stressed it well. I mean, they they did a little bit of yo yo and kind of some of the serves yeah. were tough, but they played with the depth a little bit. But they stayed aggressive enough without being overly aggressive and kind of being reckless, I thought. I'm I'm gonna actually take issue with that just a little bit from, from where I my seat on my couch. I don't know that I agree with that a whole lot. I think what I've seen Nebraska do over the last month is they said, okay, we can't keep giving away points from the service line on service errors. And I'd be, I would love to talk with, with Kelly or Jalen or Cook if we get him in the offseason about if that is something that happened uh late in the year. You mentioned Nebraska only had three service errors. And I think it's because they backed off their service pressure a little bit. Yeah. Now, yeah, they do sh- serve short a little little bit um you're less likely to you know hit a service error like arkansas did on match point when you're serving that way but i look at you know the serving specialists that nebraska brings in off the bench to ostensibly serve tough and try to get teams out of system and they're just serving lollipops over to the other team's libero and i think nebraska has decided okay we would rather do that and then just deal with your in-system attack with our block and our floor defense rather than risk serving the ball out of bounds so I was actually a little disappointed in how Nebraska's service pressure was against Arkansas because I think they mailed it in a little bit in hopes of just not giving away points. Well, which in which they did. They didn't give away. They had two in the second one, second set, and then one in the third. And then you saw Arkansas felt like they needed to serve aggressively, and they did, and it paid off for mm-hmm. them on both ends. And then ultimately got them at that last point with that service here too. So mm-hmm. let's get into the, a little bit of the play by play and kind of uh, the flow of the match too. Uh, Arkansas, like I said, Arkansas started off, they were the aggressors too. They jumped out to a 12 to six lead um, and built the, they were up and Nebraska had a little bit of rally made it tight, and, but Arkansas led 21 to 16 uh, in that opener before cook called the timeout. And to me, that's when the whole match flipped a little bit there too what Mm -hmm. did did you see kind of i mean to me it seemed comfortable with the speed what did you see change at that point yeah well what i what i saw initially was nebraska was in deep deep trouble uh they were down 21 to 16 when when a five foot seven arkansas outside hitter stuffed nebraska's six foot four middle blocker whose best attack is the slide attack and andy jackson got stuffed by jill gillen on the slide to put arkansas up 21 16 and at this point, you're like, OK, this set's over. Nebraska is going to have to kind of go take a deep breath and figure out how to win the next three. But Nebraska scored four straight after um, after that. Gillen hit long. I think, you know, Arkansas wasn't able to find some hands on their next couple of attacks. Nebraska win, scores four straight to pull it within 21-20. Um, and, and Arkansas takes a timeout. But then kind of that lack of service pressure I was talking about popped up there. Nebraska didn't serve very tough. Arkansas was in system, got an easy kill. They're up 22-20. The lead was eventually 23-21. But Arkansas, um, I, let's see, how many service errors did Arkansas have in this match? They had 10. And one of them popped up right there where um, they, you know, they pu- it pulls Nebraska 
basket within 23-22. Then this is a Merritt Beeson show late in the set. Um, Beeson really took over two late kills, two late blocks, and Nebraska eventually wins game one, 26-24, when uh, Merritt Beeson and Andy Jackson team up uh, with a block. So, yeah, credit Nebraska for fighting back late in game one when it looked like it wasn't going to happen for them. Um, just being able to finally get some kills, I think, uh, I mean, as simple as that sounds, was what pulled Nebraska out of it. And they were able to finally, I think, time up some of those Arkansas attacks with the block. For sure, yeah. And that, and that to me was Nebraska got used to the speed and that carried over to the second set too. Uh, Nebraska really came alive. Uh, they jumped out 9-2. to two. Um, They, sorry, Arkansas lost a challenge. Nebraska won a challenge during that little bit of run. So Nebraska's mm-hmm. up Arkansas chipped away a little bit, but they were never really in it. Nebraska hit 302 in that set. Arkansas hit 025 and really just controlled it. Beeson, again, came up huge. She had six kills in that second set, and Nebraska just ran away from it. And you're wondering, oh, is this going to be a clean sweep? Is Nebraska figure mm-hmm. out all the problems and figure out how to uh, handle Arkansas's attackers. Uh, no, because no, Nebraska plays a third set. And what always happens in the third set? There's a lull. The game three swoon. The game three lull happened uh, in game three. Uh, Nebraska hits just 147 in the third set. Once again, the Huskers really, really struggled to pass serves. Um, I think I made a comment from the show's social account in game three. The passing, it's so, so bad. And, you know, credit Arkansas for sticking tough serves. I think Arkansas is the toughest serving team in the SEC, but Nebraska got aced four times in game three alone. Um, Nebraska was still in this up uh, 15-14 before Arkansas scored four straight to go up 18-15. Nebraska pulls within 21-20 on a Harper-Murray kill, but then Arkansas scores the next three points, go up 24-20, and finishes the set on a kill by Maggie Cartwright. So at this point, it's a match, right? Lincoln, and what was scary to you if you were a Nebraska fan about game three is that it wasn't really Jill Gillen taking over late in that set. Uh, I think her last kill in game three came at around the, the 10, the 12 point mark. It was Taylor Head and it was Maggie Cartwright who were putting Nebraska away in game three. And then you're thinking, okay, if, if Gillen is able to add to that in game four, then like I had, I had every expectation of that match going five once game three was over. I think someone showed Taylor had the stat sheet because she had two kills, six errors on 21 attacks in the first two sets. And then she just came out and uh, went off in the third set. She had eight kills alone in that third set, too, and just really kind of woke up, too. So uh, that's set the stage for that fourth set. Um, Really another tight set that battled back and forth, too. Nebraska goes, uh, they had a couple of 4-0 runs, eventually led to a 13-8 lead. Um, But then Arkansas comes back into fights uh, and and they get it. They tie. They get it to fourteen, thirteen, and kind of they go back and forth too. Uh, and Arkansas eventually, um, really, they, they tied it up too. I mean, uh, they're and they yeah. Twenty one, twenty one is the last tie that I have here. That's yeah. when Becca Alec and Bergen Riley team up to block Jill Gillen. Um, head hits long to put Nebraska of twenty three, twenty one. Alec and Beeson again stuff Gillen uh, to give Nebraska three match points, and, and Nebraska eventually finishes it off on a on a service error by Jada Lawson. I was rewatching game four uh, just a little while ago, Lincoln. What, what stood out to me was Arkansas looked tired near the end yeah. of this match. 
in game four, they were, they were tipping balls that in game one, they were swinging away at. And I don't know if the block finally got in their head, but there were some plays at the net that Arkansas was, was get coming out on the positive end of early in the match that, that Nebraska finally was able to convert. You know, I think there was one rally where Becca Alec tried to tip an overpass three times and finally on the third time was able to put it down. Uh, Nebraska's block shows up like when you had been waiting for it to show up all, uh, match long. Arkansas hit zero. Game four, Nebraska hits yeah. 119. It was a match that really, or as a set that only a defensive coordinator could love. But hey, Nebraska grinds it out, pulls it out. And, you know, this, this felt like a regional final to me. Yeah. Any, t- either team could have won this. This could have gone to five. If Arkansas had won game one, it's anyone's match. I think Arkansas should have won game one, but you know, this is sports. The team that wins is the, usually the team that should win. And what I think is really awesome. We talked about this. about Arkansas in the weeks leading up to this match before we knew that a Nebraska-Arkansas match was possible. You hope that the success of this team with undersized outside hitters like this can show a lot of, you know, youth players, high school players that you could be a great pin hitter even if you're not 6'3 and 6'4. If you know how to attack the block and you have a good setter and you can hit with pace and you can set the ball with pace, then like you can succeed at this level. And that's one of the cool things that I think put the college volleyball community who is not Nebraska fans, who are not predisposed to liking Nebraska, um, cheering for Arkansas in this match. Because, you know, I'm not trying to patronize Arkansas when I say they seem like the little engine that could. They they were a powerhouse, just not full of six foot three players. Yeah, they find different ways to beat you. And I think that's also what Nebraska did, too. I mean, Nebraska has shown over the course of the season and the uh, postseason, too, they can beat you a number of different ways. They can beat you with Merritt Beeson going off. Harper Murray went off. She had a couple uh, back row kills that I did not know that a body can move like that. She just arched her back and went way back. And just it was mm-hmm. physically one of the more impressive things I've seen, too. They can beat you with the block. They can beat you with floor defense. And sometimes it's a combination of all of those that it takes mm-hmm. to be a, a, a team of the caliber of Arkansas too. One last thing for me on Nebraska before before we wrap this up this rotation and bring in our guest. You know, I I feel like I've been Uncle Cranky Pants about Nebraska <laughs> for you know basically the entire time that we've been um, hosting the show, and I I realize where my bias is. It's like I like pretty things. I like awesome offensive volleyball. I was really excited to watch the match that Emily got to call last night, the Oregon um, Wisconsin match. Nebraska is not the enough offensive machine this year. They're not going to play gorgeous offensive volleyball. But at the end of the day, they're 32 and one. They're the Big Ten champs. They're going to their 17th Final Four and they're doing it in a rebuilding year with four freshmen and a transfer playing. Everything else about this season, no matter if it ends on Thursday or Sunday, hoisting a trophy or not, this has been an amazing season for Nebraska and you've got to be more than satisfied with with how it's gone. For sure. I mean, I, I wrote about this in my story in Husky's Illustrated. I mean, uh, this has just been a magical year, too. You start with the stadium match, you beat Wisconsin at home, and you play a regional final at home. And you just really, I mean, the energy, like I started, said earlier, is just palpable. It was just, they, they were ready to go off and ready to kind of bring the thunder. And the crowd was great, too, and really enjoyed uh, those those back those late set rallies really gets them into it, too. I'm sure they enjoyed mm-hmm. the blowout in set two just as much, too, but there's a little extra oomph mm-hmm. from behind. So. Yeah. It was a great atmosphere at the Devaney Center on uh, on Saturday night. Another great atmosphere that we could tell just on TV as we bring in our guest, Emily Eamon, uh, volleyball broadcaster, who was able to be at the, uh, the Wisconsin, the Madison Regional this week. That place gets loud, doesn't it, Emily? The oh, field house. I am. Look, I got back last night at like midnight. I 
actually am having hearing problems just from being in that gym for so long on Thursday and on Sunday. I I feel like I've been in a lot of really loud environments this year. One Memorial Stadium game, that was mm-hmm. crazy. And the two Nebraska-Wisconsin matchups, one at Devaney and then one at Fieldhouse, were so loud. The wideout at Penn State when they had mm-hmm. you guys there. I'm not kidding, though. I, I think Thursday and yesterday were the loudest games that I've been yeah. to. It was insane. And it was nonstop. Even, like, during timeouts, the fans were going crazy. Yeah. It was it was incredible the amount of not just, like, support that that team gets, but also just the enthusiasm from everyone. Mm-hmm. You got, like, grandmas behind me screaming their heads off. It was <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, I, uh, Wisconsin has a lot of uh, – they have a big student section. They have a lot yeah. of youthful energy in the field house. And, and I think, you know, it's just a different kind of crowd than, than you have at Devaney. And we talked about this a little bit with uh, Dennis Punzel um, before the first Nebraska Wisconsin match and credit to Wisconsin for finding a way to, to just get a bunch of energy in there. I think the way Wisconsin plays also lends itself to that because it's easy to like stand up and scream your head off uh, with these giant kills when, and giant blocks when you're hitting over 300 and you're averaging three blocks a set, like it's, you know, it's like, it's like seeing a rock band that just play has 50 great hits. Like every, every show they play is going to be a greatest hits concert. Oh, 100%. I think for me, the stuff that gets me most excited are those huge defensive plays. And I think a lot of people would agree like a massive block or even just during the game on Saturday against Oregon, there were so many good saves that we don't normally see like highlight reel left and right it was it was insane and for a Wisconsin team that not only gets it done defensively but then can transition that into incredible offense and have you know a six seven beast just like thumping, mm-hmm. it gets everyone hype and I mean not to dive in X and O's too much right now but I think the the big question for me was okay does Wisconsin have any weaknesses coming into this game when they're at full strength can mm-hmm. anyone hang with them and the one thing that I thought might test them was speed. And mm-hmm. I was excited to see this matchup with Oregon, who genuinely runs the fastest offense I think I've ever seen in volleyball. I mean, mm-hmm. even off Hannah Pukas is like lightning out to the pins. And what we saw was it didn't matter. Like mm-hmm. you still have six, nine Anna Smirk out there roofing girls and you mm-hmm. have Carter who's making huge defensive reads to get outside. Um, I just don't know if there's a team right now that, is going to be able to hang with Wisconsin when they're at full strength. I thought it, I thought speed could maybe do it, but it, it couldn't. I thought it was really telling that Arkansas was the only team besides Nebraska that took a full strength Wisconsin team to five sets. And I would have loved to have seen that match again, watching Arkansas's um, pin hitters who always deal with blockers bigger, bigger than them hitting against, yeah. you know, six, seven, six, nine. And I still like Wisconsin in that match. I think Wisconsin's a favorite against anyone, but like if if anyone was going to be able to kind of deal with that and and not be afraid of it, it's a team that has to deal with it every match. So it's yeah. like when Japan plays Russia in yes. in the Olympics, like of course you've got a size mismatch. Yeah. Japan deals with that every single match. Yeah, I, I think too because I've thought back to a lot about like oh, okay, well Florida took him obviously to five, but that was different because they're set or whatever. But yeah, a team like Utah mm-hmm. takes them to five. And to be honest, I think about how Wisconsin was early on in the season, you know, they still had pieces they were trying to figure out. Like they were trying to figure out whether Yulia Orgel was going to be the libero or if they could, you know, switch around the outsides with Temi and all of that. So I think back to those early on matches and like, they were still tinkering with their lineup up until really conference play started. So this was a team that wasn't even necessarily well oiled until conference play started. And then, you know, they get that loss at Nebraska, 
two of their best players. I mean, best, you know, mm-hmm. they have any of them but you know mj hamill was out for two weeks with a concussion devin robinson was out for almost you know a week and a half or so mm-hmm. with the shoulder three too so you have two players that are vital to the offense coming off the bench and they still you know lose a game but they they lose a match in five so i i wouldn't even consider to me i wouldn't consider that a full strength wisconsin team mm-hmm. when the time that they, they played at devaney and then you know they have in a smack out and they lose two matches but again mm-hmm. not full strength so when this team is full strength, I just I don't see a team that can physically hang with them. Yeah, I'd say they're they're certainly the favorite uh, this coming weekend. Sure. Uh, again, we're talking with Emily Eman of Big Ten Network. Uh, Emily, zoom out a little bit. You were you were at Wisconsin a little bit. We'll talk about kind of the field as a whole too. I mean, I don't know if this is a bad question or not, but how's your bracket doing? Is it is it okay? <laughs> is it falling to pieces? Or? You know, bracket. It's not bad. I don't know how many people that picked Arkansas. Um, mm-hmm. so that that kind of crushed me in the in the Elite Eight. But I I had Louisville over Pitt. I feel like a lot of people did. Um, mm-hmm. And Fisher just literally just finds a way to get his players playing top notch at the exact right time every single year. And I've said it for the last three years. I need to stop doubting them when we head into a season and they look shaky. And then by tournament time, they look like this NCAA championship caliber team. Um, so, no, I had a... I had Nebraska, I had Wisconsin, I had Stanford, and then Louisville. So those two were flipped. Yeah. But I still I still have Nebraska, Wisconsin in the championship, and I still feel strongly that those two will get through. And we we talk we're gonna talk about this, Lincoln and I, later on in the show, but yeah, it's it's hard to have a really bad bracket when you're picking college volleyball just because the higher seeds and the favorites advance so much. So much of this tournament is still so chalk to the point that we're talking about today. Texas, the two seed, the defending national champion, upsetting Stanford in a regional final. And like, that's the big <laughs> upset that we're talking about. And there's a number of reasons in, you know, hypotheses that I have about why that is. And we're going to get into those. But I mean, one of the one of the surprises of the tournament is Arkansas making it to the elite eight. How how good is it? for for the growth of the sport for the expansion of interest in the sport for there to be new teams popping up so it's not just wisconsin nebraska texas stanford florida every single year um making the final four yeah honestly i'm really surprised that we didn't see more upsets just based on how the season unfolded i think yes of course we have those top teams that maybe have been rolling through people but there's been so many other upsets otherwise I was surprised to really only see Arkansas as like the dark horse yeah. also still being a three seed, like still a top eight, 10 eight, team. Nine matchup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eight, nine upset there too. Yeah. Like, Ooh, like big upset. Um, but honestly, I, I think for Arkansas's case too, you had players that their collegiate careers, potentially even playing careers could have been over. And mm-hmm. You put that honestly headed into that game. I thought Arkansas was going to beat Nebraska just based mm-hmm. solely on the fact that like you have players like, Jill Gill Taylor, like playing for their careers. Mm-hmm. And then you have freshmen who are like, obviously they've been surprising us all season, but also they're like, okay, well, we have three more years to do this. And mm-hmm. also we'll have the exact same team next year. So like, if it doesn't work out, whatever, not that that's their mindset at all, but I just think when you get late in sets, I'm always going to pick the more experienced team and the team that mm-hmm. maybe has a little bit more motivation. And I would always pick Arkansas <laughs> for most of yeah. these teams. Um, but it was, it was, um, you know, again, not surprising Nebraska won, but I, I thought that might've been an upset to your point on, on parody though. I do think, again, it is surprising that we haven't seen more upsets in the tournament, like kind of these later on rounds, mm-hmm. but I think part of it is also where the sport is and where these 
top recruits want to go are going to the schools that get the most coverage and go deeper in the tournament, like mm-hmm. in Nebraska, Wisconsin, Stanford, Texas, you mm-hmm. know, whatever. Um, so I think there's still room to grow in terms of where these recruits want to go and, you know, where they're yeah. getting teams. You know, a team like Creighton, I think they're doing a phenomenal job, like getting top recruits and they're getting better um, and they're consistently one of those top teams. Now they just need to, like, make that push. And once you make that push, then that opens up the floodgates for more recruits wanting to come because they see that you can do it. Yeah. Which we've seen this tip. We, we, we've seen yeah. it. Hit. I mean, Pitt, Pitt was kind yes. of in that middle class, too, finally broke through three years ago. And then they get two outstanding yeah. freshmen in Babcock and Stafford, too. So, yeah. Well, Dan Fisher yeah, can it, recruit, it, it, it seems like. I mean, he came up in the the, U, the Team USA youth programs. He's got good connections. And both of those stud freshmen that Pitt have are, are from Southern California. You convince two stars from Southern California to come across the country to, to Pittsburgh. Like, Berg. you're a good recruit. You're a good recruiter. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, same thing with Danny Busboom Kelly. I think, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say Louisville's like the easiest place to recruit to either. She does a phenomenal job bringing people in and, and transfers. I think it's important for those transfers. They want to play at the top schools and, a, you know, a, a program like Pitt or Louisville who now, you know, Pitt now back to their third final four and three seasons, Louisville right on the cusp of that. People have seen and these transfers have seen, oh, if I go play for this school, I have a chance of getting there. And I think it just takes one or two years of some of these breakthrough teams to get those top transfers and to get those top recruits. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, yeah, we're definitely going to dive in more into um, at least Jeff's thoughts on why uh, the college volleyball, the, the parity is not there in the same way that it is in like basketball um, in, in just a little bit. But, yeah, you're right. I think there's going to be more talent, I guess, diffusion across the, across more schools, just as, as more and more teams, you know, play more and more matches on TV. That's, that's what we saw in college football throughout the eighties and nineties. And it's, it's going to come to volleyball eventually. It's just a question of how long it's going to take. Slowly, but surely, you know, I think us volleyball people, you know, we want the floodgates to open and we want every match to be on TV and primetime and all this, which I think we all think we deserve. But, you know, that's not how the world works. That's not how TV works. We're making Mm -hmm. steps. We're making strides. We're seeing more viewership. We're seeing more games on TV, more games elevated in these primetime spots. But at the same time, it's not all going to happen at once. You know, it's going to happen year by year. And I hope 10 years down the line, we're looking back to a conversation like this and we're like, Dang, we've made incredible progress. But year by year, it's like, come on, we want more. Mm-hmm, absolutely. One of the things that popped up this year, I mean, I mean, we talked a little bit about the freshmen. Nebraska, we've talked about Nebraska's freshmen a bunch. We've Pitt has those two out their best hitters are freshmen. Uh, Ellis Wendell from uh, Texas, also another freshman setter. I mean, how, how unusual, special is it that we have two Final Four teams being led by freshman setters? Honestly, pretty insane. I I don't know the stats, but I couldn't tell you the last time it happened. I mean, for two teams to be that elite and to have their entire offense and really entire game plan run by players that come into the game and have just learned and been accustomed to the speed is really incredible. I think for those two players, you know, you, you look at a player like Bergen Riley. I mean, she's been in the USA system for so long. We talk all a lot about how, yeah, this might be her first tournament and in these high pressure games as we've gone on through the season, but also she's played in, you know, some like Pan N cups and some really high pressure international matches that not necessarily the same vibe, but she's been in, in some of these really big matches and felt like they're, you know, a, a really big deal. So it's been a steady progression of, you know, more and more pressure and handling, you know, one thing like, you know, handling playing in front of 92,000 people, you know, against a not 
you know, whatever they roll mm-hmm. them. I don't tournament, you team. know what I mean? Um, tournament, a tournament team, a very yeah. formidable, respectable tournament team that did an incredible job this year. Butter coach Buttermore is an awesome guy. Um, but you know, they rolled through them, whatever. Um, and then you play on the road against a top five team. You handle that. Then you play in a one versus two undefeated, blah, blah, blah. You do that. You play for a big 10 title. Slowly but surely, she's been knocking down these pegs of like, okay, it's not all happening at once. We've gotten these really big matchups under our belt, and they're continuing to get better. And it's, of course, not just Bergen Riley, but I feel like all these freshmen um, have done a phenomenal job rising to the occasion. And it hasn't had to happen all at once, but to have a setter do it. And that was one of the reasons why I I thought Bergen Riley, I still think Bergen Riley should win National Freshman of the Year. I thought she should have won Big Ten Freshman of the Year. To, in my opinion, it's a lot more difficult to handle that pressure and to run an offense and run an entire team as a freshman as opposed to an outside hitter. Yeah. Um, you know, Emily, you are a Midwestern girl. Lincoln and I are Midwestern guys. I don't have a ton of nostalgia for for West Coast volleyball, even if I find it aesthetically pleasing, I play a style that I like. But when Stanford went down to Texas on Saturday night, it meant that we were not going to have any West Coast teams in the Final Four. The Pac-12 is coming to an end. It's now going to be West Coast schools who are in the Big Ten and the ACC You've got big West schools that just seem to now be at a resource disadvantage. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, is, is it, does it hurt the sport uh, kind of in a big picture sense if we don't have some real power centers on the West Coast beyond, you know, Stanford's always going to be good. And then Oregon, you know, is going to be an elite eight level program. But like we don't see the, the, the Long Beach states or the Hawaii's or even like USC and UCLA yeah. didn't make deep runs this year. Is this just a cyclical thing, do you think? Or are there long-term uh, structural things that are going to prevent the the Pac-12 and the, and the West Coast Conference and the Big West from really having their say in this sport? There's going to be yeah, a lot I of think... things that prevent the Pac-12 from having their say about anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess you know what I mean. The Pac-12, I, former Pac-12 schools. I uh, it, Honestly, it's, it's such a bummer that obviously the Pac-12 is disintegrating and, uh, you know, as, as someone who covers the Big Ten a lot, I'm obviously psyched to have these crazy good programs join us who, you know, there's been 12 teams that have ever won a national championship. And you throw UCLA, USC, and Washington, and mm-hmm. I guess they went national semifinal, whatever. Teams that have, like, made Final Fours in yeah. our historic programs. I'm obviously pumped about it. But also you have to think about the fact that, like, so many of these players – they want to stay on the West coast. That's why they went to these schools. They want their parents to come see them. They don't want to travel six hours to freaking new Brunswick to play a match on a Wednesday. Like yeah, I'm psyched make- up for that UCLA Rutgers series. All right. Like, come on. But in terms of, in terms of, you know, being cyclical and, and these teams, maybe not going as far, I think it, it could get better. Maybe once these teams are in their new conferences and maybe are doing better. Um, you know, I mean, USC has had a few down years. I, to be fair, I think that team would have rolled through a lot of people had they had a healthy team all season. Mm-hmm. You know, you play Skyler, healthy Skylar Fields, I'd put her up against any player in the country to win. Um, I, an interesting conversation I had, and I won't say who it was with, but a, um, a Southern California school who we were talking about, like, Okay, you have players that are in Lincoln, Nebraska or Mm -hmm. Madison, Wisconsin. And once the winter hits, what are those players doing? They're getting in the gym more because there's quite literally nothing to do. You take a player in, you know, Southern California, Northern California, even like honestly anywhere on Mm -hmm. the 
on that coast, there's a lot of stuff to do in the winter. You can go to the beach, you can go to professional sport, sporting events. Um, you know, take LA, for example, you have like the hot, you know, you have Hollywood, you have all these things that you can do. I'm not, I'm not saying it's taking away from players getting in the gym, but like, at some point you have to think that players in Madison and Lincoln are practicing a hell of a lot more than players mm -hmm. in LAR. You know, that's funny. That flips the conventional wisdom on its head that your West coast players, you know, have more hours playing the sport because they probably started younger either in club teams or on the beach yeah. and they just have more hours under their belt so that they, they reach their potential sooner. And now from what you're saying, this conversation sort of supposes the opposite where Midwest players are actually spending more time in the gym in college because of the weather and yeah. social opportunities. And I think That's really interesting to me. I'd never thought well, of that. I hadn't either until they yeah. brought it up. And I was like, that makes sense. And that I can see why it's probably really hard, say, to recruit to a school like UCLA or USC, because if you're recruiting, you need to know that your players are coming for volleyball. You don't want them coming for you know the nightlife and the LA and the blah, 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 and the glitz and glam and this and that it's probably really hard to recruit to these places that also, you know, they're getting big NIL deals and you know that there's going to be so many outside forces happening. You want girls that just want to play ball and the girls you're getting in Madison and Lincoln, those girls want to play ball. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think too, you also see the rise of beach volleyball too. I mean, you mentioned USC, UCLA, yeah. they've won every single beach volleyball championship too. So they are getting more time outside and maybe there there's yeah. more opportunities now to play beach volleyball. I think that may be to their, the indoor programs detriment a little bit too, or as okay. that, that, that sport kind of profiles grow, uh, you maybe see them stick more with the beach route rather than try to translate inside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, of course, you know, when you're playing against other beach teams, all of those other players for the most part are, are playing in places that are always warm and sunny. So you're essentially probably practicing the exact same amount. And I don't, I don't want to say like, you know, players that are at Southern California schools, like aren't practicing. That's not what I'm saying. It's more just, I'm sure it's really difficult when you see players in the gym because their only thing to only thing to do in Madison or Lincoln is, is practice more. There's nothing to do unless you want to go out drinking on the weekends. Fine. But like during the week, Madison, what else are, yeah. Like what, what else, <laughs> what, what else are you doing besides getting in yeah. the gym? There's not, there's not a lot to do. Emily, are you going to be in Tampa for the final four? I am. I'm uh, I'm leaving Tuesday morning. I am so excited to get some sunshine. It's been a dreary and cold here. So for sure. Uh, what are your, what are your picks? Um, I I'm still picking Wisconsin and Nebraska in the championship. I, I would be very surprised. And to be fair, Pitt's been surprising me this entire tournament. Um, I think, I think the Nebraska pick game is going to be really fun. I think it's going to mm -hmm. be a battle. I still will probably pick Nebraska to come out on top. Um, on the flip side, Wisconsin, Texas, I don't see that being as close. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, Madison Skinner has the ability to take over a match. I just don't think that they've necessarily seen the physicality in the Big 12 that mm -hmm. you see against a team like Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. uh, another prediction, how big is the TV audience going to be for that? I mean, you talk Nebraska-Wisconsin, too. That mm -hmm. set the previous record for a match in 2021. This match is going to be at ABC. How how big of audience is the, is the championship match going to get? Oh, I wanna, I'll throw out a number. Um, I'll, I'll give it 2 million. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, there was 1.1, 1.2. 1. 1. Yeah, you put it on a you put it on a Sunday afternoon. It's a national yeah. title match. If you have 
you know, a, a Nebraska, Wisconsin, if it's Nebraska, Wisconsin final, I could see it being, being 2 million. Oh my God. I could see it being like, cause I'm thinking back to the Fox game with Minnesota, Wisconsin. We had Packers Vikings lead in. There was time with studio in between, but it was about 1.6, which was pretty mm-hmm. crazy. Now I think the NFL lead in helped. I don't, I haven't looked at the schedule. You guys probably know what's before the game. I guess it's early. So maybe not like, I don't it's on think ABC, anything. So they won't have an NFL lead in. Yeah. It'll be like figure skating. So, yeah, so like um so take out like a big lead in that we had for that NFL Fox game. I I still think they could draw two million. If you're already drawing one point two just on, you know, ESPN two, I I could mm-hmm. see two easy. Absolutely. It should Fingers be crossed. Yeah. I, I think it'll be it'll set a record for sure. Hopefully they can get yeah. a uh, women's basketball type number and I, I, I hope two millions on the low end. I, I'm hoping for three or four, hopefully it gets yeah. the momentum carries and they end this record breaking year with a big crowd. But uh, Emily, yeah. we thank you for joining us on the uh, volleyball state and uh, I'll, I'll see you down in Florida. I'll send Jeff. I was going to say, too, I, so. I know yeah, send a picture or something. <laughs> send me a, send me a selfie when you get down there. Lincoln we'll gets to have all selfie, the fun. We'll send you a postcard and hopefully we'll, I'll fix this pale a little bit and we'll get some <laughs> wow shots fired shots fired by Emily. myself i look like a ghost it's ridiculous <laughs> oh okay i thought you're making fun of lincoln it's like hey no, he goes lincoln out running looks, every day lincoln what do you looks want tan. Lincoln looks <laughs> my running schedule gets me out of the sun but thank you very much for joining us emily and uh we'll see you in tampa we appreciate it thanks emily of course thanks guys Thanks, Emily Eman from Big Ten Network for joining us on Volleyball State and giving her thoughts on the regional final scene. So uh, if you are in need of competition quality volleyball equipment, contact the good sports at Bison Incorporated. This Nebraska-based manufacturer has the widest selection of indoor and outdoor systems available with your choice of carbon, aluminum, steel, hybrid, and portable volleyball systems. Volleyball Day in Nebraska happened using the setup from Bison. Uh, The teams played inside Memorial Stadium on Bison's freestanding Portable Arena Junior System. Call 1-800-247-7668 for help finding the perfect fit for your facility. Request a quote online or find Bison dealer near near you at bisoninc.com. That's bisoninc.com. And we're really grateful to have Bison Incorporated with us on Volleyball State for the rest of the tournament. Um, we, we, we had a chat with them and they said, yeah, we want to support you guys through the end of the NCAA tournament. We love it. We know we're getting more and more listeners. We had a great response to last week's show as well. I think once again, it was one of those pesky number one rated episodes, uh, according to Chartable. And that's thanks to, to all of you out there listening and spreading the word about the show and downloading it and stealing a relative's phone and giving us five stars on your favorite podcast rating service. So, um, Thanks very much this week to University of Nebraska Federal Credit Union and Bison Incorporated for supporting the show. Lincoln, we just talked with Emily a little bit about that Louisville Pitt match. Let's let's dive into it a little bit in rotation three. This ended up being the best match of the day. This was our only five setter in the regional finals. It was a reverse sweep again. Louisville takes the first two sets and then uh, Pittsburgh rebounds to win the last three, which I'm pretty sure is what happened the last time these two teams met. Yep. As well. And, you know, we're, we're fairly neutral agnostic on volleyball state, but, you know, if you're a Nebraska fan, how, how crushed are you to see, you know, Danny Busboom Kelly again fall a little bit short of the final four? That's a team that Dan Meske is a top assistant. He was at Nebraska. Uh, Ellie Glock, their setter is from Wahoo. And you, you felt, you know, this was going to be really interesting. And just from a storyline perspective, 
how could you not love Nebraska and Louisville meeting up in the final four? But just like last year when they were going to meet in the regional final, except Nebraska dropped the ball against Oregon, just fate keeps saying no, Nebraska and Louisville are not going to meet up in the NCAA tournament because once again, Louisville just could not hold on to a two set lead and, and Nebraska and Pitt are once again going to meet in the final four. Yes. You say that we're agnostics. I have a little bit of bias though, too. I always, uh, Root for whoever wins the first set. That's my interest is whoever wins that first. <laughs> set, you want to you want to get that match over as quickly as possible. You have my allegiance. So uh, you're not I, deadline agnostic is what you're saying. No, I'm not deadline. I want to get the match over as quick as possible. Storyline. If it's a good storyline, sure. But if you win that first set, you'll gain mind fad fandom as well, too. So uh, mm-hmm. speaking of that first set, we'll give you kind of some quick overview of what happened. Louisville really came out and never trailed in that first set, uh, took care of business. Um, but the second set, it flipped a little bit. They were a little bit even to start the match. Pitt was up 14 to 13, but then Louisville just kind of laid the hammer, went in the 11 to four run, really pulled away uh, and took care of business in the second set. So they go up two nothing. They're feeling good. Uh, offense is clicking. PJ, uh, PK Kong is just, uh, just going off. And I don't think she had any errors at that point too. She was really driving the offense too. So everything's clicking. Mm-hmm. But once again, like when they they're when they met for the second time in the in the regular season, also at Pitt, uh, the, mm-hmm. the change the complexion changed. Uh, Louisville was up nine seven in the third, but then Pan the Panthers scored five in a row, and they had had another five zero run, so they're up twenty three fifteen, kind of pulling away, have an easy third set win. Uh, and again, the same it's the same kind of theme in the last two sets too. They had a six zero run uh, to go up eight four in the yep. fourth, pulled away Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh made early runs in both of these sets yeah. to to really put Louisville on their heels. And, you know, I thought I, I was rubbing my eyes looking at this box score. And I know sometimes live stat box scores are not the most accurate. So I could be off on this. But if if we have this right, Pittsburgh won game four despite getting just eight kills and hitting 043. And a big part of that was because Louisville committed six serving errors in the set and, and let Pitt off the hook just a little bit. It was a grinded out, ugly set that, that Pittsburgh was able to win. Um, and then, and they carried that energy over into game five and they used a 6-0 run in game five to go up seven to one, which is kind of like how Oregon started off the Sweet 16 match against Nebraska last year in game five. Louisville mm-hmm. never got it closer than five. They hit negative. Pitt hit 545. I think they had just one hitting error in the fifth set. And um, credit to Dan Fisher and company. What was the year they also made? Was it was the 2021 Final Four um, where they played they've Nebraska? Been, they've been to three straight. They've been to three straight. This okay, the that's third right. Straight Final Four. But they've never made, well, they, they've never made it to the title match. They've made three straight Final Fours. Okay, so yeah, it was in Nebraska that played them the, the first time in that run. Dan Fisher, uh, Pittsburgh's coach, you could you could see why he's one of the best coaches in the country, and he's got a national recruiting footprint. And we're going to break down Pittsburgh a little bit more on our midweek show and, and tell you all about them. What we can say for right now is they've got two stud freshman attackers. Uh, Olivia Babcock, their opposite hitter, who I think is going to be the national freshman of the year, had 16 kills against Louisville. Um, freshman outside hitter Tori Stafford had 
18 kills in the regional final to go along with 11 digs. She hit 378. Both of those players are kind of from the LA area in Southern California. So Dan Fisher has got, uh, you know, some sort of great recruiting elixir that, that gets these great players to go across the country and play uh, for Pittsburgh. Their setter is also from Southern California, Rachel Fairbanks. And so they've put it all together in the Steel City and Pittsburgh's going back to the final four. Yes, for sure. Uh, and we talked a lot about the uh, the the possibility. I mean, they they really do a great job of. Uh, I mean, they they do have the two freshmen, but they have a lot of experienced hitters, a lot of transfers. Um, but I, I was looking at the uh, national rankings and where those two, like how those two come out of nowhere too. But not not really. I mean, Olivia Babcock was uh, number thirteen overall recruit. Um, coming, yeah, these from, are like top twenty recruits. Yeah, and yeah, and, and Tori Stanford is is number twenty. So yeah, they they really kind of rose up and kind of. I mean, it's not just getting that raw talent, but they were developed a little bit too. So um, mm-hmm. that's uh, that matchup again. Sorry for any uh, Danny Buston Kelly fans or Ellie Glock fans from Wahoo and uh, Adams uh, kind of the mm-hmm. uh, Adams. Uh, and once area, again, so. Louisville losing in the, in the regional final means that we are not going to have uh, a woman coach in the final four, no chance at our first um, national champion led by a woman's coach. And so we will keep an eye on that uh, again next year. Let's move into rotation four. We, we we pick up the pace a little bit with Wisconsin and Oregon. Talked about this a little bit with Emily because she was on the call for this one. Um, Wisconsin looked every bit as dominant as a Wisconsin fan, I think, could have hoped they look. This was the match that I had circled at the start of it, the tournament where I thought Oregon speed could have given Wisconsin some problems. Uh, I was wrong. It did not. Sarah Franklin had 20 kills on 53 swings. Temi Thomas-Alara had 11 kills. Anna Smrek had 10 for Wisconsin and hit 400. This match did go four um, but Oregon had to pull out game three by the skin of their teeth to avoid a sweep and Wisconsin just put their foot right back on the gas in um, game four and and this match kind of in a in a nutshell shows you at least in my opinion why Wisconsin is the clear pick to win the national championship they are so good in like every facet of volleyball mm-hmm. they they have the second best hitting percentage in the country and they lead the country in blocks and so if you put those two together um you you almost would have to try to not be a final four team they hit 313 on saturday against oregon they outblocked oregon 16 to 4 they held an oregon offense that's high flying and fast to just 207 hitting they're the most complete team in the country lincoln in, in yeah. my opinion yeah and you you mentioned kind of the, those two key t- statistics they're also a third in opponents hitting percentage at uh, 143 behind Pittsburgh and Nebraska too. So, yeah, I mean, Nebraska has not approached Wisconsin's kind of offensive prowess. These are the kind of numbers, Lincoln, that those great Penn State teams of like the mid 2000s would put up where they'd, they'd hit like 325 as a team, but then they'd hold you to like 138. And so there was a 200 point difference between their attack percentage and their opponent attack percentage. This is the kind of Wisconsin team uh, we've got this year. Uh, they took the first two sets kind of tight, but, you know, never in real danger. Game three, Oregon led 22 to 19 before Wisconsin came back to uh, to tie it up. But Oregon um, had a, it went to extra points. Oregon finally converted the third set point to win it, I think, 26, 24 um, and, and avoid the sweep. But then in game four, Wisconsin ended it early with a 7-0 run. Uh, the Badgers hit 560 in game four with just one hitting error oh. and uh, and cruised to the uh, to the final four berth in front of a really loud crowd at the Fieldhouse in Madison. Uh, on the other side, mm-hmm. Amy Collier, uh, outstanding sophomore, she had 20 kills to lead the Oregon offense uh, on 66 swings. 
swing. So she got a little bit more of a workout uh, for the Ducks, too. So that's what happened there. Uh, we'll close up uh, rotation five. Um, we talked about this a little bit earlier. The upset of the weekend, uh, Stanford and Texas, too. I, I mean, I, in my bracket, I thought Stanford had the had the had the talent advantage, had kind of the mm-hmm. streak. They have been playing really well. Well, they've been playing well at times and just but to have the out gun Ray will out, out gun Texas, but Batty Skinner mm-hmm. had other ideas too. Uh, 24, right. 383 and Texas as a team hit 342. Yeah. I mean, this was, this was a, a complete coin flip or the polar opposite match of, of the first meeting these two teams had back in September. Uh, Stanford went into Austin on September 3rd and out hit Texas 396 to 130 and swept them out, blocked them 13 to six. Uh, this, this match bore no resemblance to that match with Texas hitting. 342. Stanford actually had more kills in this match. They had seven more kills, 57 to 50, but Texas outblocked Stanford 12 to 3. Um, Stanford also, their season long bugaboo was serving errors. They served out 14 times. Texas had just seven. And, um, you know, the Stanford block, maybe the biggest surprise to me is it just didn't show up. Stanford is a top 20 blocking team in the country. I think they're right around 2.7, uh, blocks a set. They had just three. They could not figure out how to get their hands on Texas shots. The offense for Stanford was there as it always is. Elliot Rubin, sophomore outside hitter had 17 kills to lead them. Kendall Kipp, an all American opposite hitter had 16 kills. Katie Baird had 14. So the three headed monster from Stanford showed up, but once Stanford middles just they don't get very much from their middles um sammy francis who was a player in nebraska like really really wanted uh in the recruiting process ended up stanford didn't didn't produce very much offensively this year uh it's a disappointing finish for stanford and they had a chance to push it to a fifth set in game four it was tied 22 22 um but texas closed with two straight maddie skinner kills and then asia o'neill who is going to be an all-american first team all-american middle for texas had a block uh Old friend alert, Keone Le Akana, former Husker, who transferred to Texas and is a, a back row serving sub DS specialist. She was the one serving the final points for the Longhorns. Stanford, yeah, just just couldn't put it together defensively to slow down Texas uh, in this match. And and I don't know if there was, you know, it's hard to tell from halfway across the country, Lincoln, but it seemed like there was maybe a little passion problem for, for Stanford. They always kind of felt like they could turn it on, turn it off because they knew their offense was so good and, and figure that that's always going to to let them win the day. But maybe there were some alarm bells in the second round where they went five with Houston and um, it manifested again in the regional final. For sure. And it just, I don't know whether their passing broke down at times too, and they became overly pen to pen dependent, which I think it took, that took the middles out, out of the match a little bit more too. But we should also say Texas was very fortunate to be even in this match too, because they got a scare on late, 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 late. Oh yeah. Uh, they went, we, we're sickos, eight. right? We stayed up and watched this. Yeah, I, um, but man, that was a late match. Yeah. They, so oh, they had I'm five so sorry sets. for you against Tennessee and uh they faced a match point in set four. Tennessee was up uh I forget mm-hmm. what the score was, but they had match point and then Texas scored. Yeah, it was like 24 23 or 25 24. That went extra yeah. points. Texas was one point away from from having their season end against a Tennessee team that was another one of kind of the impressive oh. surprises of the year along with Arkansas and as you know the strength of the SEC this year was was really apparent and impressive, but yeah, Texas absolutely could have lost that match on Thursday. And it was a painful end of that match too. I think I said the final four points took 
at least seven, 10 minutes. They, would get, they did double reviews. There was confusion of the calls, uh, but Texas ended up pulling it out in that fifth set. And then they rode that momentum and uh, knocked off Stanford. So they will, uh, they will mm-hmm. be in the final four again. Just taking a look at our timer, Lincoln, we're over an hour. Uh, I still want to eventually get to this talk about why college volleyball still kind of goes chalk and and the tournament is still largely predictable as, as far as who wins things. Um, let's save that for our midweek show, because I think that could go a little bit. And I want to marinate on these theories a little bit and maybe maybe screen them by people smarter than me <laughs> in the volleyball world. But I do want to talk about that, because if, if the sport's going to grow, it can't just be you know, the teams with the greatest recruiting classes winning all the titles. And, and I think there, there's some things that can be done. Um, but also I think there's some, you know, things about the sport of volleyball that are very unique that I got into on the show's social account over the weekend that, that lends itself to explain why. Uh, the favorites are usually going to win in college volleyball. But, hey, let's close with just talking uh, the final four real quick. Let's set it up. Nebraska and Pitt are going to play the first match on Thursday in Tampa. Um, and then that's going to be followed up by by Wisconsin, Texas, you know, and 40 minutes after the end of that first one. Matches first are going to be on be, uh, what? 6 p.m. on ESPN. Did I say else? 7? No, 7, 7 p.m. I'm sorry. 6 p.m. Central on the mothership. That's right. 6 p.m. Grab an early dinner. It's going to be on ESPN Thursday. I know the Nebraska Alumni Association is putting together kind of a pregame party that's going to be on Thursday afternoon, early evening leading up to the match. And I think those details are getting finalized in the next day or so. So we'll let you know kind of where all the Husker fans are going to be getting together down in Tampa. It's going to be down near the Amelie Arena, uh, home of the Tampa Bay Lightning. Yes. The, uh, the, that's my souvenir for the weekend. Know, I might get a Tampa Bay Lightning Perennial. Hat. Stanley Cup Challenger, uh, Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Lincoln, you're going to be down there starting sure. what on Wednesday. We'll be taping a midweek show where like we are going to get some special guests that's hanging around the final four. This is one of the cool things about being around the final four is like all of the smart, interesting people are in the sport are kind of in one place at one time. And then you'll be there too. And then we can probably, uh, grab one of them to, uh, to talk about on our, for our show on Wednesday. Glad you didn't include me in these smart, interesting people. Uh, and I'll be there. I too. was hoping that you didn't hear that. Oh, I heard you that. Just, for like, sure. right uh, by it. But yeah. If you're going down to Tampa, get there early. They have a cool kind of uh, arena entrance into the uh, arena. As teams arrive and get off the bus a couple hours before the match too uh but it'll, it'll be fun come up and say hi we'll uh all hang out and uh watch nebraska playing their uh final four the 16th final four. 17th, 17th final four I'll, this. I'll write this in my stories so 17th final four but <laughs> that is uh that is our podcast for this week so remember subscribe and review uh thanks again to bison incorporated and the university of nebraska federal credit union uh you can follow our podcast and get more of jeff's and my thoughts sometimes we like to bicker back and forth on the same twitter account that's fun to follow uh you can follow that <laughs> at volleyball pod and email us at volleyballstate at gmail.com also thanks to emily eman from big Ten network and various other broadcast properties she's a rock star and she was very kind to join us today you can find me on social media at by jeff sheldon lincoln where can the folks find you and then all of your final yes. four coverage this week yes uh you can find me on twitter at lincoln underscore vb or threads lincoln a underscore vb uh, i will have a lot coming out this week i'm working on a story kind of about the junior class their return to the final four they went as freshmen now they're back as juniors what's different about that so i got to talk to them after the match on saturday 
Uh, but thanks again for Podcast House Media for, for hosting us. You can find more quality podcasts on their website, podcasthousemedia.com. And we'll be checking back in with you later this week. So thanks for listening and keep living in the volleyball state. Yeah.